This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. And to be the Anya And I'm Ben Brophy. All right, so in the last episode, where this is part two of a two-parter, which is basically called, What Do We Want to See from Our Next President? And in our last episode, we talked about um, dispositionally from the perspective of shepherding, messaging, communicating at this time in our, what, what we, I think we can all agree is a, a pretty extraordinary time in our history. What do we want? What do we need? This time, we're going to ask what sort of substantively from a policy perspective we want. Now, we've talked about lots of areas of public policy. Um, so this is a, partly a question about prioritization. And to get the prioritization bit right, here's the way um, I'm going to frame the question. So we often talk in presidential administrations about the first 100 days. Um, I think it was Franklin Roosevelt that popularized that concept. He comes into power. What's he going to do in his first 100 days? But it's a useful sort of uh, kind of starting point to say, what advice would we give to the president and whoever that is in January of what they should focus on from a policy perspective in the first hundred days? And a couple of options you've got at your disposal, right? You've got, you know, sort of budgeting and spending priorities. You've got legislation you might send to Congress or, or propose to Congress. You've got sort of executive orders and executive actions of various sorts. Um, and um, you, you do have the business of staffing and appointing people to top positions in government too. So to the extent that you wanna talk about that, that's also, that's also um, fine. But that's the basic question. What, from a prophetic perspective, would we hope that our next president does um, in their first 100 days? So uh, you don't need to give your complete answer. We'll just sort of go back and forth a bit. We'll just love to hear what, what comes top of mind for you guys when you hear that question. Ben, you want to start? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping to talk a lot now and then just not say anything else because I have areas areas that I would love the next president to focus on, but I don't have any specifics because I haven't. That's fine. Areas is fine too, yeah. right? Uh, like, uh, yeah, I guess five things come to mind. Just off the top of your head, five things. Exactly. <laughs> I, love I love it. All right, here we go. The first four are domestic and the fifth is foreign policy. So uh, one, uh, yeah, coronavirus. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, we, we need a, I'd like to see a robust plan from the federal government uh, to help mitigate effects of, of the virus, um, whatever that may be. Uh, and, and, the virus, and the plan doesn't have to be perfect because no plan is, it has to be adjustable, but just some kind of comprehensive, like, hey, this is the guidance we're gonna to give to states. This is how we think we're gonna spend money uh, in the federal government. We need money to do, develop this many tests or what, whatever they may be. Um, yeah, something fulsome and comprehensive on, on how we're gonna move forward. Um, yeah, that would be one, I think coupled with that, this is not, a, this is still in the area of coronavirus, but also, you know, I think it would, be helpful to do something to mitigate uh, economic impact on people. Uh, I'd like that tailored to individuals and small businesses instead of larger organizations and corporations. Um, so that's kind of the coronavirus. Uh, two, um, two, three, and four are all Imago Day issues in my mind. Um, so let's start with police brutality. Um, uh, Senator Tim Scott introduced a bill a while ago that didn't go anywhere. Um, would like to see both Democrats and Republicans get together and the next president and think of some, yeah, legislation that could help there. Again, it's probably not going to be perfect, um, but I think anything that would, would alleviate kind of the crisis we're seeing uh, between police and people of color would be, would be great. Um, I think, yeah, it's important too, given the, the frustrations of those or protesting and counter protesting and yeah, I think there's just I think we need to see 
leadership on that area um, so people can feel like their voices are being heard on that particular topic. Three, one that I think has slipped a little bit, um, immigration and how we're handling families coming across the border. That that seems to be lower. That that doesn't seem to be top of mind as much anymore. Uh, we need a con we need a cohesive and common sense approach to families and kids coming across the border and their parents, uh, i.e., not separating them. But beyond that, how are we going to handle these people? Um, what are we going to do? Uh, as, as I understand it, there are statutes that are in conflict and in the absence of clarity, the executive branch can kind of do whatever it wants. Um, and that's not great, at least right now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so leave it at that. I, I love comprehensive immigration reform. That might be a bridge too far, but that would be great. Um, you know, um, but we'll leave the details to later uh last domestic thing i suppose uh would love to see anything that restricts or perhaps gets rid of lots of abortion um again the specifics the art of the practical there i don't know what's realistic and what's not um, but would love to see comprehensive legislation that curtails and helps to end abortion that'd be great um and internationally, foreign policy wise, uh, I really simple, really simple. I love to hear um, the next president speak boldly, per, perhaps even prophetically, to places like Russia and China, and uh, make clear that we are going to um, advance the cause of uh, fair and equitable treatment for all citizens around the world regardless of whether they are Uyghurs or um, yeah, any other group that could be facing, facing oppression. So I think we've gotten out of the habit of saying that things around the world are wrong. Um, yeah, I could go further there. We could certainly do less bombing. That'd be, that'd be nice, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at the, the way we talk about other countries who are participating in some things that I, are not great are not good um i'd like to hear us just very simply say those things and say them clearly those are my five right yeah quite the quite the agenda and we can start to debate specifics because i know there's overlap for some of those areas for 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 us um t what do you think what would you like to see well i, I think it's interesting to see the to see the convergence in some of these things i mean we're supposed to be like you know a conservative person, a, a progressive person, somebody <laughs> in the middle, confused, and uh, Ben just gave us a pretty typical liberal agenda, but that's okay. Oh. Uh, <laughs> no. So, uh, yeah, I got six things. Um, if I'm king for a day, if I'm president, first 100 years, tempted to be prophetic, I got five or six things I want to do as well. Um, my first one is the same as Ben's. I want to bring the pandemic under control, reviving the economy. I want to put together a you know, Reestablish the pandemic task force, um, give them some actual leeway and, and authority, and um, craft some recommendations that create a unified um, response to these things. Um, because until we get the pandemic under control, we're not going to return to economic normality uh, in any real sense. Um, we've seen a, a slight bounce um, after the sort of worst fall off in the economy but we're not getting back to where we were pre-coronavirus. Um, and, and that little bounce in recovery has definitely been slowing down. And I think its effect, uh, it, it hits the most vulnerable people, right? So it's clear that folks like me, you and Ben are, are doing okay. We can do our work virtually uh, to a considerable extent. Uh, people, people like us uh, haven't been laid off in, in great numbers. Um, and, and where many of us have, we've, we've gotten back into the job market uh, fairly, fairly quickly, many have. Um, but when you compare that to people who, are, uh, who have less education than we do, uh, who engaged in uh, personal services of, of one sort or another, maybe they're working in hotels or other kinds of frontline workers who cannot do their work virtually, they've experienced huge job losses um, and uh, are suffering an even greater um, slower recovery. So for me, the pandemic economy issue, the intersection of those things is a kind of Proverbs 31, 8, 9, speak up for the vulnerable 
um, kind of responsibility for leaders. So that's that's where I'd start. That's job one. Job two, uh, since I'm king for a day and this will never happen, if, but, you know, also assuming that these guys, either one of them are going to be sort of one-term uh, presidents, um, I'm going to sort of front burner bringing racial discord under control to establish a countrywide conciliation, uh, i.e. reparations. Um, our, our current president has stoked racial resentment and fear and anger to his political advantage. He's brought things to a boil. Um, we're seeing it in all kinds of troubling ways. And so the next president needs to act decisively, not, not just to quiet the country, um, but to actually address the fundamental unresolved issue. And so here's the aim. Uh, be to establish a, a reparations agenda and investment that would do three things. And I'm, I'm borrowing here from William Darity. Um, acknowledge the wrong and accept responsibility for restitution for the wrongs uh, committed against African-Americans. B, or two, redress or compensate for those wrongs. And three, provide closure between the victimized and the culpable parties uh, so that we arrive at conciliation. Now, I'm not, I'm not very interested in kind of verbal symbolism. I'm interested in a fundamental redress that would serve this and future generations to come. And that means this policy agenda must result in sizable economic impact. We, we've got to close the black-white wealth gap. And one way of doing that, one structural way of doing that would be a reparations agenda. Um, wealth has a direct impact on equality, especially in a money capitalist society. Um, and the racial wealth gap is a direct result of 300 plus years of the country's racist policies in slavery, segregation, um, economic marginalization, and so on. Um, so African-Americans are hold about 2.6% of the nation's wealth, even though we're 13% of the population. The, the average black household has a net worth, uh, with a median net worth, $800,000 lower than the average white household. That's, that's median or excuse me, that's average. The median uh, for white families is about 171,000. For all families, it's about 100,000. Well, the, the median for African-American families is $17,000. That's how wide the disparity is. Um, and so a reparations program on the order of about 10 or $12 trillion um, would, would need to address that wealth gap. Third, also sort of uh, along the lines of, of Ben's thinking here, uh, since we're being prophetic, and I want to call for a pro-abundant life law that would um, make supports to pregnant women legal and generous and make abortion illegal and unthinkable. Um, that's going to mean providing economic supports, contraceptive and prenatal health supports and other kinds of supports to mothers having children, uh, especially vulnerable women. Um, those can be in the form of direct payments, tax credits, other things. That's going to be having, you know, making something like contraceptive available over the counter, which, which interestingly, you get someone uh, on the so-called left, like a, a, a Ocasio-Cortez, and someone on the right, like a Ted Cruz, agree that, you know, this is something we should do. Um, so figuring out where we can find agreements to um, actually provide supports that um, limit the number of unwanted pregnancies and reduce the number of abortions um, and make abortion illegal. You know, however, we need to do that. Um, that's that's where I would be. Number four, I won't say much about this because again, Ben mentioned this. I think we need to revive the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act with some other additions. Um, that that act would do things like ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants uh, in the sale of military-grade equipment to LEAs, in uh, qualified immunity, and toughen accountability for officers. And uh, I think we need to we need to divert significant funding to mental health and other interventions that would reduce police involvement that leads to, um, you know, school to prison pipeline, disproportionate arrests and sentencing, uh, and the treating of mental health issues as if they are criminal uh, kinds of issues. Um, two last things. Number five, immigration. Uh, I think we need to get back to refugee admission levels that are pre-Trump levels at least. Um, we need to see DACA become legislation. And um, to Ben's point, if there's a way to get at comprehensive uh, immigration reform, uh, we, we, need, we need some good thinkers helping us to do that. Lastly, uh, to throw a bone to Nick, I think we need to return to the Paris Climate Agreement uh, hey, in, in drilling and fracking. 
<laughs> That's my list. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, let's take a quick break. I'll share my list after the break and then we'll all just sort of talk and interrogate and question each other's lists. He's going so. to back clean up, Nick. Uh, ben. <laughs> Packing his favor, as usual. That's good. Good to pack the court. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. And we're back. All right. So I agree with a lot of what you all have said. And let me try to sort of make what I'm saying additive rather than sort of re-going. So like, I think that I agree on the whole life agenda. I think you might say as long as, um, as long as Roe v. Wade sort of remains and until it's overturned, that might be a partial agenda, but it would still be an agenda that would lay the groundwork. You could say, we're going to do all these things that um, disincentivize abortion essentially and make it a lot easier to raise children. Um, one thing that's interesting is you can frame it differently. It's very expensive and very difficult to raise children in this country, right? Especially in, if you live in an expensive city. And so what can you do to make that much, much, much easier? And it's everything you said to me. It's also universal preschool. Um, it's sort of, it's, it's finding ways to compensate what is currently uncompensated care when someone goes and enters the home. Well, I'm sorry, when someone leaves the, we leaves the professional, the outside of the home workforce and works in the home. How do you make that possible, right? Like there's, um, there's, been, there's been some chatter around, um, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, who's likely to become our next Supreme Court justice and, you know, being a person with a large family and a family commitment and like what made that possible. And often it's, additional resources, additional support, supports around you. How do you make that possible for every person, man or woman, right? Who, all, who wants to have a family and also wants to uh, make a living. So that's kind of one piece that I agree with you all on. Um, I think I, I'll say that I, um, I agree on the questions around the pandemic and the recovery. Um, and the only thing I'll note there is that um, in a lot of ways, it's funny, I listened to a podcast the other day that asked, well, are the Trump and Biden plans really that different? And um, actually, one thing that was noted was consistency and messaging at the top matters, bringing together sort of, say, all 50 governors and, you know, territorial uh, leaders and saying, let's forge a consensus on what we believe together and not make it partisan will matter. Um, and then as a practical matter, the likelihood is the next president is going to have to get vaccine rollout right over the course of 2021. So those are some of the big ticket items. Um, I want to wrap up a couple of the items you all talked about in the first 100 days in this question of essentially what would be a next recovery package. So likely situation is that in sometime January, February, March, Congress will need to pass and the president will need to sign some sort of recovery package um, that spends for recovery, that's some combination of recovery, pandemic relief, uh, and um, uh, uh, sort of um, allowing for the economy to function even if we're in some state of lockdown, which we might be because winter could be a tough season. Um, so I think the question here is I don't quite want to say never go let a crisis go to waste, which is what Rahm Emanuel famously said at the beginning of the Obama administration. What I do want to say is when the government is spending that much money, we're talking trillions of dollars, what you don't want to let go to waste is how that money gets used. So for example, to be, and what sorts of conditions get attached to it. So you can tie together a couple of different core issues that you all have mentioned in a recovery package, right? In particular, you can tie together questions on racial justice. You can tie in things about climate and energy, and I'll say a little bit about that as well. Um, 
And um, you can tie in things that just have to do with, you know, sort of the general question of like what sort of recovery we want to have. Um, so suppose you're spending two or three or whatever it is trillion dollars. Um, there are a couple of things there, right? Like, so for example, like I think people talk about the Green New Deal, like it's this awful radical left thing, um, partly because of its price tag. They say, oh, it's, it's $2 trillion. What they neglect to mention is it's $2 trillion over whatever it is, like a 10 year budget window. Whereas this is, we're, we're talking about the recovery package. We're talking about spending $2 trillion in like less than a year, right? And um, it's funny, one, one thing I often hear AOC say, which I agree with is, you know, we can find half a trillion dollars to bail out the airlines. We actually can't seem to muster it for anything else that matters. Um, and these sort of issues are among them. Sorry, so, where are you getting a $2 trillion figure? It's 51 to 93 trillion over the next decade. 51 to 93, so from where? Uh, Green New Deal, I mean, I, I just Wikipedia real fast. Uh, estimate plan over the next 10 years as AOC proposed it, not any change. They estimate it'll be somewhere between 51 and 93 trillion. So two okay. trillion, I don't know where that number comes from. Not to throw cold water on your- No, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. I mean, part of this is about like, the, the Green New Deal is more of an idea than it is like a kind of well fleshed out policy, which is why the range you just gave is as long as it is. <laughs> well, is, is, is I'm referencing the document that AOC put out, which is for better or for worse, the Green New Deal. But I will, I, I digress. <laughs> yeah, no, but I guess my point is that like, you could, when you're spending $2 trillion in the course of a single calendar year, like make a big difference. So, I mean, the basic element of the idea of a Green New Deal is you're just asking yourself, when you're spending lots of money on recovery and stimulus anyway, is the money you're spending actually directing investment towards a transition to green energy and toward clean energy and other things like that? Um, or is it just being spent with no strings attached? And I think that's one thing you should ask. We should ask ourselves, given that we're already going to spend that kind of money, right? And so I think that, that that's the more modest claim I'll make, Ben, is not that like we should adopt the whole Green New Deal, but rather we should say, what aspects of those would be in better invested in clean energy and in, in infrastructure that would make it easier for us to reduce our carbon emissions, but also spend money and put it into people's pockets, right? Like that was supposed to be the magical intersection of the Green New Deal, right? Was that it was supposed to deliver that social benefit. It's also supposed to be spending that's helpful, right? Um, and create jobs, right? And, 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 and put people to work in much the way that the original New Deal did. Um, I think too, the other thing you could think about the meeting, why couldn't, for example, um, some of the, restitution portion of reparations be a part of a $2 trillion expenditure package, right? What's to keep us from saying, actually, um, we're, we might not spend $2 trillion this fast for a long time in the future. What would it look like to spend that money in such a way that decreases the racial wealth gap, right? I mean, that's a, that's a radical idea, but it's not, a, it's not an unprecedented one, nor is it like a crazy one for all the reasons we've talked about in our episode on reparations and other things like that. And the question is, are we going to spend two or three trillion dollars with no policy objectives whatsoever? Or are we going to think about these things and prioritize them, right? So I think reparations, racial equity, other things like that, those are the sorts of things where when you're spending that much money, it's an opportunity you shouldn't let pass. Um, and then getting into stuff that you guys didn't yet mention, um, oh, uh, Ben, I agree with you on foreign policy. And I would say my take, although I think there's a lot that can be sort of, I think there's a lot of room for debate here, is that we're going to a less multilateral world. You know, unfortunately, it's a world where there's a little bit less global connection, a little bit more countries turning in on themselves. Um, and while that's not the world I prefer, like I think recognizing that reality and engaging in a bit of realistic sort of in a bit of a realistic view of what that means for the U.S. as a relatively strong country that is relatively self-sufficient. Um, what does it look like to sort of be, um, you know, innocent as a dove, but wise as a serpent on the global stage when it comes to those things? Um, I do think that that is, that's probably the direction we need to head with our foreign policy in general. Um, then if I, if we look at, um, I, I think the things I would add in the main thing would be um, strengthening our democracy, 
And um, I know that generally that's going to be pegged as being a sort of a lefty progressive thing. And it's true. The Democrats are likely to do it. The Republicans are not likely to do it. But let me make the case for why any president ought to do it, right? Um, the integrity of our elections is what keeps us free. And whether it benefits one party or the other, there are certain things that we probably ought to change. And I would, I would call this a more robust sort of set of legislations to defend particularly the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments to the Constitution and to actually flesh those out and rediscover and reappreciate their meaning, particularly the 15th amendment, which is explicitly about enfranchisement. So a couple things you could do. Number one, you could do automatic voter registration across the entire country, or better yet, eliminate voter registration. Voter registration was invented in the 19th century as a way of disenfranchising people. So we should just get rid of it. You know, uh, we, there, obviously we have the technology to figure out who the people are who are eligible to vote. We might as well just use it. Um, I think um, placing sharp curbs on gerrymandering and the drawing of legislative and congressional and uh, congressional districts, state legislative and congressional districts, um, taking that power if we can out of the hands of state legislatures or doing some things. Congress has the power to do things like mandate multi-member districts or do other things that are going to make elections in general less partisan. Um, things like that. Congress actually has the power to mandate a lot of that stuff. They've done it um, in various forms over the course of our 250 year history. Um, so that's another thing. Um, statehood for those territories and, um, um, and areas populated by American citizens who want it. The most prominent examples of those are DC and Puerto Rico, not because it advantages one party, but because it is the right thing to do uh, for American citizens who should be enfranchised and on an equal footing with their fellow American citizens. Um, uh, yeah, those are, the, those, are the, uh, those are the main things and probably a renewed Voter Rights Act that casts increased heightened skepticism on restrictions to vote that are imposed at the local and state level. Um, I think the 15th Amendment demands nothing less of us. Um, I think we haven't fully fulfilled its promise yet. Um, so those are some of the things that would be um, on my list. And, and you're going to keep the Electoral College? Oh, well, well, I mean, you need to amend the Constitution. I, I do agree you need to amend the Constitution to get rid of the Electoral College. Um, <laughs> well, there is this, th I mean, there is a thing, the sort of national popular vote interstate compact. Which I like it. I like, I'm fine with the Electoral College. Like, um, I don't like the idea of only catering to cities. So I'm, I, if you want to tink, tinker with the mechanism, go ahead. But yeah, I, I like the idea of catering to people. Like, um, so that's, that's my objection, right? Because you could just easily say, I don't like the idea of catering to the, to all the, all the places outside of cities, which is what the current system does. Um, uh, I think it, I think it balances, I think it balances those two things well. Um, but yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm probably not, I, defending the electoral college is probably not a popular thing to do, but I am, yeah, I'm, it's not a, I'm, I'm not a believer in the first past the post, um, winner take all kind of style. Um, but, but that's how every single election, every single congressional election in the U.S. has decided. Uh, congressional, yeah. But again, like, that's not how the president's been decided. So I'm, I'm content with the system that we have. The other, the other piece of congressional elections is like, um, like, as you've mentioned, districts are all they play with the margins of districts in all sorts of ways right so i don't mm. it's not as if those are you know pure and simple uh popularity contests either um anyway no, no, hence hence that's why you want to get rid of gerrymandering right you want to get rid of like politically motivated drawing of district lines if you can yeah. I the the struggle there is one it's the states that do that well anyway we don't know I don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I am for gerrymandering. I, ex, I think it is a reality because it, it is in the interest of those who currently are in office to currently like to keep going with that. And so I think you're just going to practically speaking as a practical matter, I think you're going to have a hard time getting rid of it, but well, that, that, that's a reason why it will be difficult. I'm not sure it's yeah, a reason yeah, why. Why it shouldn't be done, right? Like, um, 
And um, I think that, um, again, different states have solved these problems in different ways, right? Independent commissions that draw the district lines and other things like that. Um, but it's interesting, Congress could literally pass a law tomorrow that says everyone has to, every state has to be a gigantic multi-member district where all the members are elected within it by proportional representation. Like, because Congress actually mandated the current system in 1965, where every single congressional district had to be drawn by a, a single member district, for example, right? So like our, our system's only about 50 years old in that regard. Um, but those are the sorts of things, right? But um, one of the things to be the electoral college, you probably can't, um, that's not a first hundred days sort of thing, right? The other things I'm talking about could be done in the first hundred days. Um, but, but for the record, right? Like the electoral college is like, in my mind, a totally insane system. <laughs> like, um, right down to the fact that like the electors can be faithless. They don't actually have to like vote the way that the uh, states say that they're gonna vote. Like there are all kinds of things that are wrong with the electoral college. Um, and, you know, lest we forget, right? Like the electoral college as originally envisioned was meant to not even be about any popular vote of any sort whatsoever. It was meant to be about each state selecting their favorite sons, sons only, uh, and having those favorite sons kind of like duke it out in terms of, I think they expected to use the, the sort of backup mechanism to the electoral college more often than we ultimately did because they quickly amended the constitution very shortly after to give us the system we have now. Um, so I, I, anyway, I think it's a bit of a relic, but yeah. So those are the things, those are the, those are the things I think we should do, but I think, I think strengthening people's faith in our democracy um, and all of these things, by the way, would put into place a system where both Democrats and Republicans could win. Um, but we would, I think, count the outcome as fairer uh, whenever one or the other won. Um, right now, the system does it. I mean, it won't always be this way. I'm not saying it would always be this way. Right now, the system advantages Republicans in most contexts. Um, and over time, that erodes trust in the system. You don't want that. Um, that is that is not a good thing. It also causes Republicans to take positions that are more unpopular than they would otherwise take because they know they can get away with it and be insulated from electoral accountability when they do it. You know, so nobody wants Paul Ryan's tax cut budget except maybe you, Ben. Um, but like they always run on it. They always like they always come back with it. Like you know, the, the sorts of things they do are unpopular, but they don't pay a price for it, as it were. Hmm. Well, anyway, I like your I like your addition of kind of shoring up our democracy. Um, I, I think in a number of ways, our um, democracy has been battered uh, for the last four or five years, and um, I, I just yeah, I just think that's good and healthy um, for for politics in the country. So I appreciate your thinking in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I would join together. Uh, racial wealth gap stuff with, say, stimulus package in terms of coronavirus recovery. Having to think more about that, my, my first reaction is tactical. Um, I think that um, there's a good chance that you lose the stimulus package um, for the economy and, and for uh, fighting the coronavirus to, to sort of join those two things at the hip. So I got a tactical question there. The other question is more, or the other concern is a bit more principled. Um, and that is, I think, in order for us to have closure on these issues, that, that whatever investment we make at reparations needs to be sort of self-consciously understood as that. Yeah. It needs to be sort of uh, acceptable for those who have been victimized and those who are, uh, say, the state in, in the sort of position of, of culprit. Um, it, it's got to sort of evidently be understood as something that is quote the fix to the to the wrongs that have been committed and i think if you if you sort of join it together with something like a recovery package for uh the pandemic and the economy uh i think there's a lot of room for people to sort of not think of it as the fix uh yeah. and others to think of it as the fix there'd be no sort of consensus no agreement in that regard and i think that undermines um, its potential for creating closure. You know? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's a really good point. And so what you may want to do is kind of have the 
have a sensitivity to racial equity be part of the package, but not make it the vehicle yeah. for thinking about reparations. I think that makes sense. There are there are bills that people in Congress have introduced. Actually, I mean, you know, I, we said this on our reparations episode. Every year, the bill gets introduced, a commission to study reparations. The finally actually take that up and have the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, it's longer than the first hundred days for sure to really actually do that. Definitely, definitely. Um, I think in general, the idea of adding everything to a stimulus bill makes the stimulus bill or re Corona Recovery Act, what do you want to call it, more yeah. difficult to, to pass. And so there is an element in which uh, speed matters, right? Um, the faster we get relief out there, the more that may stave off or mitigate job loss, because as, as you know, Nick, um, these job losses are becoming permanent the longer we go. And so there's a, there's a reason to be speedy there. Um, and the other thing is like, the more you add to it, um, yeah, the more votes, the more uh, in a pragmatic matter, you're going to need more Democrats um, to be elected and to be in the house and the Senate. I don't know. I, I think we can say we can, we have a, strong sense of how the presidential election is going to go. We have less of a sense of how the Senate's going to go. And so, you know, and you've got three or four. Well, don't say that, ben. We have no idea. <laughs> I don't want us eating any words. <laughs> Likewise, I was surprised he'd been to say that. I was just telling us what, what this sense because I, last time people were reading the tea leaves and the polls, um, yeah, that was a stunner. It did. That. It did, yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to make the same mistake twice. Um, but let's let yeah let's assume it, to whatever whatever the results of the election you're going to need um more votes if you can't pull any r's um that's going to give you it's going to make it a tougher time because you do have moderate you still have um the guy from west virginia and uh a few others who are going to be leery of any, anything other than a quote-unquote clean um, recovery bill. The other thing to throw cold water on all of us, but probably use you more than me, uh, is is cost. We are about to be $27 trillion in debt with a $3 trillion deficit in 2020. Three, almost three and a half. And so, you know, yeah, you could, we, we could shrug our arms, but that bill, that bill does come due. Um, at a certain point, uh, like we've talked about this before, but you know, it appears Social Security may start to have a shortfall as soon as 2028. Um, if we keep spending at $3 trillion a year, um, that could come sooner. An end to Social Security and Medicare means uh, pain for the least of these, right? Um, both the elderly and the financially poor. And so, yeah, I mean, how we pay for all of this and what opportunities that uh, precludes, you know, we, we got to balance all that stuff out. Um, there are certainly tons of things we spend money on that we could spend m less money on. Uh, and there's Social Security reform you could do. Um, but as the system is now, um, yeah, those things start to start to come into jeopardy with within 10 years. And that's that's not great for anybody. Mm. Not something for the first hundred days, but that means potentially, well, doing those things, potentially figuring out where taxes ought to be raised, God forbid, in order to fund that, but also where other spending ought to be cut. You can't, so you can, you can, you can cut spending, you can, you can raise taxes. That is like an economist's nightmare for GDP. But beyond uh, that- That's why you don't do it now, right? You, right. Have, you, have, to, you have to wait to do it. But, but to- work. <laughs> any of that to get social security right means uh, a course correction for the next 20 years, which both means, which, which both means, you know, passing like one time things to get us headed in that direction and Congress reaffirming our commitment to fiscal discipline for 20 years to start to start to balance that stuff out. And I don't know that we have the will to do that in either party. Uh, that's, that's why it's, that's why we call prophetic politics, brother. That's right. <laughs> well, not, not pragmatic politics, you know. Uh, uh, 
but join us for our sister polit- podcast, Pragmatic Politics. <laughs> but even talk about the art of the possible. But even about even from a moral like a whatever a moral perspective, it's it's like jeopardizing these systems. A endangers people who can least least afford it, and B like you know having future generations foot the bill for what we're doing today is immoral, right? It's not as immoral as other things, but yeah. it's not great. I think the weakness of your argument then is, and I don't know that I disagree in sort of an abstract principle way, but you started out by saying that the system is already in trouble. Yeah. Right. But you sound like you're arguing for status quo. No. And so, okay. So that, I mean, everything I'm hearing you saying as a caution sounds like an admonition not to do anything. No. Um, I'm saying if we do all the things we're talking about, the 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 cliff <laughs> for all of these things our ability to do any like social security medicare even even any other stimulus that wait who's to say the emergencies are over right like who's sure. to say we don't encounter another crisis in the next five or ten years every every time we make we kick the can down the road financially we limit our ability to do this stuff in the future so i'm not saying don't do what you're saying right now is what would be said in the future. What do you the mean? The very caution you're giving right now that if we make decisions now, it's going to limit our ability in the future. Let's say we do nothing now, fast forward 50 years, we're going to have the same caution. So I'm saying your caution is a steady state affair. And so we, we at some point have to do something. Right. But I'm saying if we're going to spend money on X, Y, and Z, we've got to figure out a way to make sure we can pay for X, Y, and Z. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no disagreement there. Okay, I, I thought I, were, I was hearing you say something more, which no. was, okay, all right. I'm not saying don't do it. Um, I'm probably, yeah, as far as budgetary priorities, um, yeah, I don't, I don't object to, well, I can't remember everything you guys said. But I don't think it's. You, I don't objected, think it's, to it. you objected to it all, so you know. Just I don't have a moral or ethical issue with spending money on the things that I remember, um, <laughs> but I do have a moral, ethical, and pragmatic objection to, you know, the amount of money going out the door being so much more than the amount of money going in the door, and so we've got to we've got to figure that out, like. Yeah. And budget hawks have been talking about this for years and nobody, neither party does anything. And that's, that's fine. But someday <laughs> in, in my, like, I, you know, we're going to, we're going to pay that cost. Um, and it could be that we need to spend another 3 trillion to alleviate some other economic or pandemic or any other kind of emergency. And we don't, we don't have the ability to, and that would be, yeah, catastrophic. Um, so this actually brings me to my last question as we run up against the end of our time, which is, I asked about the first 100 days, but what are your top priorities if you're president for the long term? What are the, th- what are the generational things you wish? So Jen, Ben, one of yours clearly is, you've said it before, right? Fix the debt, discover a better way of thinking about fiscal health um, for the country so that we have a sustainable budget. Yeah, I mean, that is one, I don't, so I, life is more important to me than being financially whole. So that, like my, I would still say in my prioritization, like these Imago Day issues are more important to me than, than budgetary. I, I think what, the, what scares me or what concerns me is by having a unsound financial house, our ability to do things that protect life, that protect life womb to tomb, that all that, that that goes out the window, and sure. so that's what I'm afraid of is like our ability to care for anybody if we're broke becomes constrained, um, uh, at least through a government mechanism. I mean, we'll, there'll still be charity in in private individuals and communities and and things of that sort. But I, yeah, the ability of the government to help people to provide a social safety net mm. that starts to come un, into jeopardy, and that that worries me. So again, like I, 
I think we're all, we're relatively agreed on the issues we want to tackle. And I think they're more important than the budget. Um, but like the two are linked. Our ability to address A needs B. Yeah. I'll trade I'll trade you, Ben. Long term budget reform for my democracy protection package. Um, we'll do it, we'll do it all. No, you just told if you had a, a uh, somebody a Republican other than me, they'd be like, "Oh, you're going to give me uh, more money to spend for for political power? Wow, what a deal! <laughs> I'll, I'll entertain that." Less <laughs> no Republican on the hills going to entertain. Hey, prophetic politics, man. That's fair. I'm I I could go for that deal. I would go for trading universal health care for an end to abortion. If you want to talk about like deals. Sure. Yeah, no, 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 that would be the other, that would be one of the other big things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what about you? Long-term things you want to see? I think reputation, re reparations clearly falls in that category because you're thinking long-term, but what else? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, what you brothers just sort of did over there, um, you know, an end an abortion and um, what you talked about, uh, Nick, in terms of shoring up our democracy. Um, those those will be things. I I think it's going to take us a couple of generations to um, recover from the damage done by this presidency. Mm. So I, so really everything we're talking about is is in reality going to have to be sort of protracted. We're going to have to sort of stretch it over a longer scale. That's just there's just so much that's been eroded and um, undermined that you know the next guy is going to find out there's no plumbing in the White House. Um, yeah. it's, it's going to have to start putting in plumbing and and uh, drywalls and all kinds of things. Yeah. So, yeah. There is, okay, so I want to make one more issue point, and then I want to just say one broad observation from this conversation. So the issue point is, the other thing I'd prioritize long-term beyond the stuff we've talked about, right? So you, you think about sort of the trends of the future, the things that like I think about on the horizon. One of them is the climate crisis and the idea that like the climate will begin to affect us more and more and more if we don't do something about it. Um, a second is just the sort of increasing precarity of financial life for people who are sort of just trying to grow up and raise families. And that intersects with kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of trend of automation, the workforce. Um, and I think we've talked a little bit about sort of the, the, the so-called problem of meritocracy, which is just to say our whole system is built around this idea of if you work hard and play by the rules, you can get ahead. And increasingly, for various reasons, that promise has broken down. The breakdown of that promise, you could argue, is part of what elected Donald Trump. It is also the sort of heart cry of lots of people in you know, communities of color and marginalized communities around the country. There's this sense of the system doesn't quite work for us the way it ought to. And you can see it in everything. You can see it in like what it costs to go to college. Like, the, uh, you, know, the, uh, you know, I think I heard one person say the very ticket to a middle class is a thing that stresses out the middle class uh, because of how expensive it is and how difficult it is to obtain, you know, sort of at a level that's gonna make a difference. Um, and increasingly the question of whether that's even the right model. Um, I think there is a set of bigger, deeper questions. And part of it is about policies you can do, right? But part of it is about asking like whether the nature of our social and economic bargain is the right one. And I think you, there's, no, there's not a quick 100 days fix for that, but there is this sense of if we don't start to pay some serious attention to it, that too will sort of undermine the perceived legitimacy of the system and whether people really want to buy into it. Like the system treated me very well. I was a good meritocrat. I tried to get good grades in school, went to a nice school or whatever. But the question is, does, does everyone have an equal and fair shot at that? It doesn't feel that way right now. So that's like the, the, the issue I'd want the next president to really spend time on, even if there isn't immediate sort of legislation forthcoming. And then the only other observation I've just listened to all this talk here is that I think attitudinally, what we need from the next president is someone who's going to think creatively about compromises and coalitions they can make. So we've talked about these trades, right? Like the whole life agenda, the thinking about um, thinking creatively about sort of abortion and um, universal health care. Uh, I, I did my democracy for budget reform trade or whatever else, but this this idea of things that cross and create unusual coalitions. I think both in terms of what that would accomplish, but also what the message it would send about 
sort of why we serve in government and how we try to make common cause with other Americans, even those of different political sort of backgrounds, I think that would be hugely important. So I think the other thing I would hope for is that the next president would try to think differently and creatively about how to do that. All right, well, any final thoughts before we, before we, before we shut this one down? Uh, I'm happy to vote for either Nick or Ben for president. Oh, yeah, so that's right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you'll have an opportunity to write our names in. <laughs> <laughs> Too late, man. Too late. Uh, I was pretty sure. <laughs> pretty sure my wife will not be happy that I received <laughs> one vote for any sort of public office. So, um, all right. Well, with that, three, do you want to go ahead and pray us out? Be glad to. Father, we thank you so much that you have allowed us to live in this land, that you have providentially given so many blessings to, including Lord the the freedom to vote and uh, to participate in the governing of our country. We thank you, Lord, for um, the, the open square, the public square. And we pray that you would preserve it, preserve it with a sense of civility, preserve it with a sense of hope, uh, preserve it, Lord, with a sense of love for neighbor um, and uh, a, a, a seeking after righteousness. And so as we've been talking about ideas, if we were president, uh, these imaginations of ours, Lord, we pray that you would make it in some way encouraging to the listener and uh, even practically useful in terms of uh, charting a way forward in terms of what we advocate for and give energy to. So help us to steward this unique blessing that you've given us in this country and grant that stewardship would bear much fruit um, in, in making for the good life as you define it, and um, that it would be a, a blessing to great flourishing um, for the people of the country, we pray. We ask this, uh, even as we ask that you would guide and protect us as we go to the polls in a couple of weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.